Welcome to From the View Box with Hal and Chris. This is the podcast of the UMass Medical School Department of Radiology. My name is Hal Lowe from the Division of Emergency Radiology. And I am Christopher Cernelia from Musculoskeletal Imaging. Okay, welcome back to the podcast. Today we have uh, as our guest, uh, Dr. Mark Masciocci from the Division of Abdominal Imaging. Mark uh, has been at UMass for a few years now uh, in the Division of Body Imaging. Uh, he is uh, newly appointed as the uh, director of our body MRI program. Congratulations, Mark, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Al. Yeah, congratulations, Mark. Well-deserved. The topic of uh, today's episode is the role of imaging in hepatocellular carcinoma treatment and liver transplantation. So Mark will be discussing uh, this topic with us today. Let's just dive right into it. Um, Mark, can you give us a, a quick overview of uh, liver transplantation and the role of radiology in liver transplantation? Of course. Yeah, so to start, uh, it's important just to consider that, you know, pretty much with almost every surgery uh, that isn't superficial, you know, radiology is always going to be, you know, a big part. You know, it's, it's rare for, you know, surgeons to really act without really knowing ahead of time what they're going into. And that's especially important when you're dealing with a patient, uh, well, two patients usually, sometimes living, sometimes deceased, to transfer, you know, a, a huge organ from one person to another, um, you really want to know what that recipient, at least, is going to look like ahead of time, so that when you actually open the patient up and actually have to divide many, many vessels, so you know, hepatic arteries, hepatic veins, portal veins, bile ducts—they all have to be accounted for. Uh, that's a lot of anatomy, and that's the kind of anatomy that we see very well in radiology. So doing any sort of imaging ahead of time will let you know sort of what's going to be difficult or sometimes if somebody is even really a good candidate for transplantation because it's a limited resource and we really only want to you know use this limited resource for people that can really benefit from it uh, to give a transplantation to somebody for example who already has you know diffusely metastatic cancer throughout their body you know, while unfortunate, wouldn't be the best use uh, when it could, could go instead to somebody who has many years ahead of them and doesn't have a malignancy, or as we'll probably talk about later, a very limited malignancy confined to their liver. Great, yeah. Um, it, yeah, so in my mind, you know, liver transplantation and uh, the whole process uh, of caring for these patients is really kind of one of the bright spots of tertiary care, quaternary care, uh, um, especially at large academic centers such as our, our, ours. Um, before we dive into the details, can you um, then talk to us about um, a little bit of the clinical background for hepatocellular carcinoma, carcinoma treatment and, and then how imaging sort of fits into that treatment paradigm and what the imaging features uh, how, how they are important for that treatment paradigm. Yes, uh, that's a really important question. So, and uh, just as I was alluding to limited cancers, you may still be a good person for a transplantation, you know, with many years ahead of you. And in some ways it's, or really directly, it's a, uh, it's killing two birds with one stone because if somebody has cirrhosis and runs the risk of going into liver failure 
and they have uh, a small cancer within their liver, having a liver transplantation both A, could cure them of their cancer, and B, also allow them to have a healthy liver that's going to allow them to live for, you know, many decades more. So that's why, uh, you know, it can be uh, really, really important to basically find the, the right people uh, to do this for and not the people that it's not going to really extend their life too much. So that's really where this whole talk about Milan classification comes into, you know, the Milan criteria, I should say. You always hear this term, uh, at least in, in my area, about being inside Milan and outside Milan. And what that refers to is actually a very small study with only 40 some odd patients that was done years ago that showed basically people who had limited hepatocellular carcinoma, you know, small ones of a certain size, a certain number, if they had transplantations, they did very well uh, down the road and were cured of their cancer. And so that's used as a basis to really rule in and rule patients out. Now, it's not like when somebody has cancer beyond that, they can't not have a transplantation. You know, we have new criteria that sort of build on that because, like I said, that was a very small study. And, you know, with treatments really getting better and more robust, you know, we can really control cancers of people with more advanced cancers still confined to the liver um, and potentially give them a transplant down the road once we've demonstrated that it's... Um, it's been under control. And so what's going to show that the cancer is under control uh, is radiology, you know, regular imaging. So these patients usually were imaging every three months, you know, with CT or MRI to a, you know, diagnose potentially HCCs or, um, you know, advanced HCCs uh, and then uh, determine, you know, basically where they sort of are going to eventually, not directly, but eventually end up on the list. Um, and the reason why this is really important for radiology is because unlike pretty much all malignancies, um, with few exceptions that I can think of, uh, radiology is one, uh, hepatocellular carcinoma is one topic where radiology officially makes the diagnosis. Normally when we see a tumor, you know, we say it looks malignant, we recommend a biopsy, but ultimately comes down to the pathologist, but that's not the case here. Here, because these patients are so high risk, uh, they're coagulopathic, they have ascites, they're just uh, really not great candidates to have a liver biopsy, which could have some serious complications, especially if we're talking about many lesions and putting multiple, you know, core biopsies in them that's, you know, fraught with, you know, with problems. Uh, because hepatocellular carcinoma has some classic imaging features, criteria has been developed that basically allows us to definitively diagnose a hepatocellular carcinoma on imaging and then go straight to treatment. And so that's huge because um, then that really sort of expedites a, their, uh, their ability to get treated for this cancer, but also it expedites their ability to get points on the list. Because, you know, the other key thing is that, you know, you have different types of people with liver disease. You have people who are, their liver is failing and you have people who have cancers in their liver that are compensated. Uh, the you know liver disease is basically under control, but if they don't get a transplant now, that cancer will continue to grow and then it'll be too late. So how do you account for that? Or how do you even the playing field, you know, for those people that were found in the Milan criteria to do well? Well, that's where we get into this whole topic of meld and meld exception points. So basically, long story short, ACC patients who have definitively diagnosed ACCs on imaging by us get meld exception points, which means they go higher on the list. 
So our REITs really have a dramatic effect on whether this patient is going to get a transplant or not, or whether they're going to be taken off the list altogether for having too advanced a cancer or for another reason. Um, so, you know, every three months, you know, we really need to objectively look at uh, these lesions, compare them to the priors, and really show um, whether they've actually, you know, progressed or not. And then that's where we get into these topics of, you know, LIRADS classifications about how do you, you know, confidently call these classic imaging features, which are arterial hyperenhancement and washout and a capsule, uh, and then ancillary features that sort of point towards a malignancy or a different malignancy uh, in the liver. Uh, generally, I should say we're pretty much always talking about cirrhotics with the exception of, of hepatitis B patients. They basically fall into this category as well, even if they don't have cirrhosis because it's been shown that they're at higher risk for it, regardless of whether they're at cirrhosis or not. Um, so that's our population. Um, so there are exceptions to everything. You know, People can have HCC potentially and not have any liver disease. It's not common, but in those types of situations, then they don't technically fall into these imaging classifications. And we might, we often do end up having to go to a biopsy just to prove it because they don't sort of fit the, the, the classic paradigm of an HCC patient, a cirrhotic who has this new nodule that pops up in their liver and starts enhancing this way. And, you know, we just know from, you know, tons of data that that's an HCC pretty much for sure. And we should just go and treat it. A couple of things that I think I want to just, uh, tease out, which is one that there, there is a classification system for these HCC uh, lesions in the liver based on, you know, imaging. You mentioned LIRADS, and there are, of course, references for that, and there's been quite a bit of research on that. Uh, and then second, um, as always, our, our guest, uh, Dr. Masciocci, has, has uh, graciously uh, um, provided us, our, our listeners, with a couple of references that will be uh, have have some of those information in detail in case you want uh, anybody wants to read a little bit more about it um, as we continue this discussion. That's great, Mark. Uh, I think that's a great overview of uh, you know um, imaging features and background on HCC treatment. Um, you know, for the residents that maybe are just getting into some of the uh, hepatic imaging. Could you, I guess, give us a, an idea of, you know, I would start off with HCC. What are, what are some of the features of HCC? What should the residents be considering um, when detecting and describing these lesions first? Um, and then I guess maybe parlay that into how that affects um, or how does that impact, you know, um, liver transplantation, the consideration for liver transplantation. Sure. I think that's a key uh, question. So basically there are three core signs. Um, the first is arterial hyperenhancement. Um, the second is washout. And the third is a capsule or a pseudocapsule, which are the same thing. Um, the arterial hyperenhancement and washout, um, it's important to stress that means it's in reference to background liver. So basically, it needs to be getting brighter or it needs to be getting darker than the rest of the liver, clearly, not equivocally, because it's also important to be really definitive because if you're not sure, if you're not on the fence, you really are supposed to not give it the point basically to bump it up the list on the, the LIRADS list or the OPTN criteria list that basically gets it closer to being an official HCC. So that's often sometimes tough when you're looking at these for the first time. So it's just something that you will get used to over time. But um, 
you know, it, it, the important thing is that, you know, ultimately when you actually reach that level of being an official HCC, um, it will, you know, direct management. And sometimes even for our non-transplant patients, you know, if we're not even at a LIRATS 5 or an OPTN 5A, 5B as they're called, if you're at a LIRATS 4, for example, they may just treat that because why wait? The patient's not interested in getting points. It's time to really just, you know, do something about it if we're reasonably confident. So those are the core imaging features, but then there are a bunch of ancillary imaging features like on MRI, T2 hyperintensity or signs of there basically being intracellular fat because that's a really common and unique characteristic of this particular tumor. Um, if the tumor is invading into a vein, that's also very important because even if you have a definitive HCC, once you see it go into a vein, guess what? That means no transplant, it's too advanced. Uh, so that's, that's also a very important thing that they're often very interested in. And it becomes tough sometimes because these patients with cirrhosis who have slow moving blood through their portal veins because they have portal hypertension get clots as well. So then differentiating, you know, a quote tumor thrombus or tumor in vein as they want us to call now, because it's usually not clot from an actual bland thrombus also becomes a very common question that we need to differentiate as well. Um, so there are a number of other like, Im you know, imaging features like restricted diffusion and other things that might point towards a malignancy, but not specifically at, at uh, towards HCC. Um, and that's all kind of listed out in, you know, the LIRADS, uh, you know, um, uh, manual. Um, but I think it's important to just start with those three central, uh, characteristics because that's really, um, what are going to matter at the end of the day. That's great, Mark. Um, so let's let's get into um, some of the the complications in these transplantations. I know that's something that you know back in the day, it was a, lot, a while ago, when I was looking at some of these cases, that was something that we were always um, you know, specifically looking for. So, um, can you maybe give a an outline for the residents about what type of uh, complications um, we typically see in these patients after transplant, and you know maybe some. Uh, helpful pearls or tips uh, for the residents to identify them and, and properly describe these? Sure. Uh, that's that's going to be a common thing we're going to encounter. Um, I guess the first distinction is just to think about what's a, a technical complication that really has to do with the surgery, uh, you know, the actual vessels and bile ducts that we're operating on versus just something, you know, that goes wrong after the patient has, you know, their transplant. So, you know, the patient could have, you know, a rejection or they could have sepsis for another reason or they could get pneumonia. There's a lot of other things that aren't necessarily directly related to the transplant itself. Uh, often we're really important when it comes to evaluating those technical uh, complications because, you know, our, our clinicians, you know, they, they know if the patient is septic, you know, they might want to know from us if we can find a source, but often whether this uh, transplant is going to survive or not, uh, will depend uh, particularly on the vessels and the bile ducts, which are, you know, what they need us to, to take a look at. So that usually happens first with ultrasound, usually three and five days after transplant, where we interrogate all those vessels and uh, the bile duct as well. Now, the most common complications is a little bit of a, of a mixed answer because usually you'll, you'll hear that biliary complications are the most common technical complication, but it's it's not the whole story, because you know it's it's not that just the bile ducts on them in, in in of themselves are having an issue. A lot of times it has to do with the hepatic arteries. The reason why I say that is because uh, 
unlike the rest of the liver, which you know gets a mixture of blood supply from the portal vein, from the hepatic artery, uh, about 80% you know, from the portal vein, the bile ducts get all their blood flow from the hepatic artery. And so that's why the hepatic artery is so important in transplant, because if that artery goes, the bile ducts go, the transplant goes. So it's often a common reason if we can see a hepatic arterial thrombosis to take a patient back to the OR. That's in contrast to some, you know, exclusively biliary complications that might happen, like say, a, um, a stenosis at the anastomosis of the, the you know, the, the the donor's bile duct to the recipient's bile duct. You know, that can get narrow, that can cause biliary obstruction. Um, but depending on what's happening with the patient's labs and their whole clinical situation, it may or may not prompt, you know, action. Whereas it's very important for us to recognize hepatic arterial thrombosis because if we see that hepatic artery you know, entirely go out, they will rush that patient back to the OR and a lot of times have to relist the patient for another transplant because that one is going to fail. Uh, you often hear that because the liver has a dual blood supply, you can't infarct it. Well, that's kind of true for you know, regular livers, but not for transplant livers. Those get infarcted all the time. Uh, after that, you have your portal veins and hepatic veins, which you know generally you know can thrombose, can have other issues like that. Uh, with the hepatic veins, the issue that can sometimes happen is because they're piggybacking the donor's IVC onto the recipient's IVC, so there can be a stenosis there. It can cause congestion and backflow and so forth. Uh, portal vein, you know, just the typical thrombosis uh, can happen there as well, but. Uh, you just don't see those uh, quite as commonly or become as serious as, as um, the hepatic artery, which um, I should say the reason why uh, the, the complications that it can cause with the bile ducts are uh, ischemia, which then can cause strictures, but also can cause leakage. So bilomas, things like that, can then start to leak out of the patient and cause fluid collections, you know, often are extremely painful from bile peritonitis. So you can see how the hepatic artery has a number of downstream effects um, that become very serious. So that's why often that's the one that I emphasize the most. Great, Mark. And I just, you know, I, I heard you mention there um, about a three and five day ultrasound. Is that uh, something that's routinely done? Is that the only uh, routine imaging follow-up? Maybe could, could you just touch on that for our residents? Yes, that's a, a, a good question. Um, so the three and five day ultrasounds are pretty much standard um, because that's when, you know, basically there's been a little bit of time for you know, the body to sort of get adjusted to having this new organ anastomosed um, into the recipient. So generally, they don't often look with an ultrasound too early on, like right after the surgery, because it can cause a lot of, you know, unneeded concern, because, you know, we, we often use the term that the, the arteries, the veins, and whatnot need to wake up. You know, they need to start really perfusing this new organ that has, you know, gone through a little ischemic time and just needs to get adjusted, uh, you know, to these anastomoses, let blood flow go through, let the vessels open up, um, you know, and if you do it too soon, like right after the surgery, well, you may not see a ton of blood flow yet, but it's, it's going to come. And usually about three days later, you know, things should be relatively normal by that point. So, of course, in the situation where maybe there was something really concerning about the patient before three days, like maybe the patient came out and, you know, within a day was septic and their liver function tests were through the roof, well, then they probably are going to image that person earlier. Uh, 
ultrasound's often the good place to start because these patients are, you know, in pretty critical condition. And so our techs can go up and, and scan at the bedside. If needed, the patient can be transported down to CT, which is the next go-to, but, you know, it's there, it's more of a logistic, uh, you know, issue. And so also when we're looking at these three and five day ultrasounds, even if we see something cons- uh, concerning, the clinicians will take it into the context of what else is going on with the patient. Like, for example, if we think we're equivocating about something with one of the vessels and we're not sure, but then the patient's LFTs are downtrending, they're not, you know, they're not having any sort of uh, clinical issues. Well, that really may not, you know, cause much concern in the end. That's great, Mark. Um, is there any other like more long-term follow-up? You know, you were mentioning obviously the acute um, follow-up in the uh, post-operative uh, patients, but you know, I guess more more long-term. Is there um, how is the uh, the imaging role uh, there in these patients with HCC and liver transplantation? Good question. So it really isn't official. It's not like these patients need to go back to having um, imaging every three months because since they have a new liver, a healthy liver, they shouldn't be as predisposed to developing, you know, an HCC and, you know, provided their lab, you know, labs and clinical picture are okay. They, you know, shouldn't, you know, necessarily need imaging to look for any sort of problems with the liver because it should be a, you know, a functioning liver. Um, but that said, if there are things that are starting to happen, like maybe the patient, um, uh, you know, on, on labs, you know, shows an elevated AFP, which is a, you know, important marker for, you know, hepatocellular carcinoma, if that all of a sudden starts to go up, they'll be concerned that maybe this patient, you know, might've had some, some cells, you know, from HCC that are still in their body, or maybe for whatever reason, reasons we don't totally understand, they might develop an HCC again. Um, more likely though, you know, it could be that there was an occult metastasis uh, that just wasn't detectable. And unfortunately, you know, the patient now is, is metastatic. And that becomes a big issue looking for that because this patient is now immunocompromised. And in addition to fighting off infections, the immune system also fights off cancer. So now the patient's really in a difficult situation where they have a cancer and now their immune system is being suppressed. And so, you know, that becomes increasingly hard to treat. So preventing a patient who's metastatic or catching a patient that's metastatic before they go to transplant becomes very important. That's a great point, Mac. Um, I think that's uh, helpful for the for uh, you know for all of us to, to understand. And you know, and they certainly emphasize the importance of again the imaging you know, early on and making sure that um, you know these patients are properly um, characterized so that you know the appropriate management is is in place. We talked a lot about, um, or you talked a lot about the um, the role of the transplantation specific to HCC. Um, can you have liver transplantation for other malignancies? Yes, you can. Um, there are some exceptions, uh, even for uh, metastasis from uh, one particular uh, malignancy, which is neuroendocrine tumors. So you may have heard about, I think Steve Jobs had a neuroendocrine tumor uh, and got a liver transplant. So you can get that because you know there's data to show that patients who have, for example, I think it's less than 50% you know, uh, tumor in their liver that they can, they can do well once they get a transplant. That's really not true for most other uh, cancers, but that's one uh, unique exception. Uh, another exception is, you know, some uh, a rare tumor um, called hepatic epithelioid hemangioendotheliomas. It's a long word; it's rare, but it's established that those patients can get transplants because it's a primary liver cancer um, that you know often shows up as more than one lesion, but 
um, it's been shown because it's relatively indolent. If the patient can get a new liver, they, they will do quite well as, uh, down the road. Now, the elephant in the room, of course, is cholangiocarcinoma. That's the other common primary liver cancer. And cirrhotics are at increased risk for it as well as HCC. Um, so sometimes cirrhotics can get cholangiocarcinomas. And so that distinction becomes very important as well on imaging. And, you know, traditionally it's been thought of as kind of a contraindication to a transplant, but even that has changed um, in, in, over the years because these patients are getting more frequent imaging. We're identifying these tumors earlier, particularly in our cirrhotics. And so the question is, why can't they get a liver transplant if they have a small cholangiocarcinoma? So that's why the, you know, UNOS, uh, OPTN, you know, has created new pr rules for being allowed to do transplants in those types of patients. So they basically have to submit a protocol to that organization to get approved. And, uh, you know, I'll say right now, we don't have one at UMass, um, but they do have them at some centers uh, where they can basically show that they have a way of distinguishing, you know, those patients with advanced cholangiocarcinoma from the ones that don't. And it's a more uh, robust or it's a more drawn out process of screening those patients. So, you know, they require things like, you know, actually having, uh, you know, you know, neoadjuvant chemotherapy and, and um, laparoscopic, um, you know, you know, observation or, or um, I shouldn't say observation, but uh, laparoscopic staging, you know, uh, before they actually can get a transplant. So it's, uh, you know, a much more difficult process than uh, getting it for ACC because uh, one, you'd have to go find a center that actually has a protocol uh, and then you'd also have to go through a lot more to actually, you know, get approved and uh, be able to get one. And that concludes part one of our discussion with Dr. Masciocci on the role of imaging in hepatocellular treatment and liver transplantation. Please join us next time as we will discuss the living donor and Dr. Masciocci will provide some helpful hints, pearls, and pitfalls uh, with hepatocellular carcinoma and liver transplantation imaging. And that concludes today's episode. Thank you for listening and supporting From the Viewbox. We've attached additional reading materials to the episode notes as provided by our guest. And please visit us at www.umassmed.edu backslash radiology. Thank you to our colleagues Charlene Barron, Tom Delaney, and Dan Ramsaran for their technical assistance. See you next time.